How many of you, um, like me, really enjoyed that Thanksgiving dinner last Sunday? It was a feast, and I don't think we had a chance to properly thank Nancy, and I want to do that right now. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you so much. And she had a lot of kitchen help as well, and we want to thank you for those of you who were in the kitchen there. And we had we served over 140 people at the Senior Citizen Center uh, last Sunday. It was it was a great feast, great time. As you uh, saw this morning, we have a lot of babies in our congregation. It's nice to meet uh, baby Mason and then uh, Carmen, Elisa's little uh, baby girl, and of course. Uh, uh, Hannah, and then we have two little baby grandchildren. There must be some, as they say, in the drinking water or something like that, I guess you might want to say. I got a chance to go see uh, Grant Union High School football game yesterday. How many people were there? <laughs> that was a great game, wasn't it? It's always good when your hometown football g- team plays in the state football finals, and they win. They win. And that was wonderful. That was really great. Last Sunday, we looked at David's Thanksgiving song, song of praise to God. He said he was uh, exhausted, and then he began to thank God. His poet and his uh, musical abilities came alive, and he wrote that particular psalm that we read about in 2 Samuel. This week we turn a corner, and we're going to look at another section of Scripture. We're almost finished with the life of David. Next Sunday will be my last Sunday uh, after 20-plus weeks looking at David's life. And then we're going to look at the Advent season. But I, wanna, I want us to focus on this particular passage of Scripture that Pat, uh, Pastor Brad got through reading and as well in First Chronicles. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm asking this morning that you'd help me to share this message and make it applicable to our lives this first Sunday in Advent. We welcome you, Lord. We say you be the center of our lives. You help us during this particular season to honor you and glorify you. You're the reason for this season. I pray that you'd help us to learn something about the lessons from this particular passage of Scripture when we look at David's life. Last week was a psalm of thanksgiving. Today is a note of introspection. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I heard about this groom. There was this particular groom, and uh, he said to the minister at the wedding rehearsal, he said, I'll make a deal with you. I will make a deal with you. During the vows, if you leave out all the honor and cherish and obey stuff, I'll give you a $100 bill. I'll give you $100 if you leave all that stuff out. So he slipped a $100 bill and, and he put it in the minister's hand and he walked away with a smile. And the next day... During the particular wedding ceremony, the minister said to the man, Do you promise to bow down before your wife? Do you promise to serve her breakfast in bed every single day of your life? Do you promise to fulfill her every single desire? The man gulped, and he said in a very weak voice, I do. He then whispered in the minister's ear, Hey, I I thought we had a deal. I thought we worked it out. The minister handed his money back to the man and he said, Your wife made me a better offer. (laughs) If I could just say it this way, God makes us an offer. He makes us an offer. 
He says to us, Jesus said, I've come to give you life, abundant life. And God says, here's the offer. You love me. You do what I ask you to do. You, you be obedient to things I, 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 I ask you to do. And I'll bless your life. And yet Jesus said, Satan comes to kill, maim, and destroy. And so Satan makes an offer to us as well. He says, in contrast, uh, disobey God, live for yourself, listen and follow me, and I will destroy your life. I'll destroy your life. Who are we going to listen to, and who are we going to follow? You know, most children outgrow their childish ways. As we grow a little bit older, as we mature, uh, we stop the name calling and we stop the, you know, the my dad is bigger than your dad mentality, uh, the steady diet of candy and gum. Although I got to tell you that on the way home, Greg stopped the at the dollar store and I had to have a Snickers candy bar. I just had to have one of those candy bars. Kathy and I one time went to one of those uh, specialty shops where there, you have nothing but candy. It was called the Candy Vault. To give you an idea, and it had all the candy from our past childhood, and your, you know, all the ch uh, candy that you've had. And we walked in there with a brown paper bag, and I began to sample this and sample that, and I thought Kathy would restrain me, but instead she said, "Why don't you have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this?" And so we had our candy filled. But seriously, there is a point in our lives, even as God's children, that we grow up. At least we should grow up. But did you know that age is no guarantee of maturity, our freedom, our error, uh, or from sin? We're never immune to its appeal. In fact, it's been my observation that often, not always, but those people who fall the hardest, unfortunately, are those people who have walked the longest with the Lord. And that's sad. It would be wonderful if I could announce that as we grow older that we automatically grow up and that we become uh, automatically more mature, and, 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 and the longer we walk the Lord, or, or, you know, we're guaranteed immunity from sin or temptation. But it's been my observation that over the years, that the longer you walk with the Lord and the more you want to serve God, the bigger the target that grows on your chest. And that's just true. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, and in this parallel passage that Pastor Brad got through reading in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we're given, in this particular passage of Scripture, we're given a vivid account of a tragic example of this when David, in the latter years of his life, committed a sin that literally affected thousands of lives. And let me set the scene for you this morning. David and the children of Israel, they get in another war with the Philistines. This time around, however, it is the brothers of Goliath. They are the leaders of the Philistine army, the brothers of Goliath and the rest of the giants of Gath. And it is a rout. The children of Israel, they rout the Philistines. They defeat them and they are victorious. But after the battle and after, after the victory, however, David was very, very vulnerable. And we've talked about this before. It seems as though after every mountaintop, after every victory, we see David very, very vulnerable to temptation and sin in his life. He is tested and he's tried this time. But as we saw earlier, when old Snaggletooth set his trap for David, unfortunately, David, because he's so vulnerable, gives in to this trap. I want you to notice chapter 24, verse 1 of Second Samuel. One more time. 
Notice, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and count Israel and Judah. Now, God was angry with Israel. We don't know the context for this. It just says that God was angry with Israel. We don't know all that was happening here. Perhaps the children of Israel have been doing something they should not be doing. But we don't exactly know all the reasons why. However, it had an effect on David. That's what it says here. And David was ticked off, you might want to say, too. Upset and hassled, he commanded, Go, number Israel and Judah. Specifically, look at verse 2. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with, and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many people there are. Another translation, go through all the tribes that I may know the number of people. Now, you say, Pastor Ron, why would David want to do this? Why would he want to take a census? Is there anything wrong with taking a census? In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with taking a census. Most of us know that here in the United States, every four years, we take a census of the population of people. However, biblical scholars suggest that there's a problem. There's a problem. The problem was David's motive was wrong. David wanted to learn the strength of his army under the pretense of taking a census. In other words, he wanted to see how vast, how many people were in the land, and specifically, how many people were of age to be warriors. When I was in auto shop class a number of years in high school, every single day, it seemed like, in the afternoon, the guys would be tinkering around with their cars after Mr. Sells did his little spill. Most of the time, people were just tinkering and they were talking. And inevitably, it got around to, what size of engine do you have in your car? One guy said, I've got a 327 cubic inch car. Another guy said, well, I have a 400 something cubic inch car. My car could do 120 miles an hour. Well, my car can do 130 miles an hour. It was this kind of comparison, you might want to say, to see how big, who's got the best, etc., etc. And that's the only thing that we can figure here because the context tells us that God did not want David to take a census. And the only thing that we can figure out here is that David was very, very prideful and he wanted to do it just to see how many potential soldiers he would have in an army if he needed that many soldiers. So... Here he is, he wants to take this census, and it's at this point that he receives some very, very wise counsel, which he ignored, unfortunately. Look at verse 3 with me. But Joab, his commander, this is, this is his commander, replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of the Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? Oh, David... I hope the Lord multiplies the army a hundred times over, but it's a bad idea that you take this census with the motive that you have. It is self-centered, and it will lead to you down a road of arrogance and pride. Now, a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 21 will give more insight into David's decision. In fact, that passage of Scripture that Pastor Brad got through reading, 1 Chronicles 21.1 says... Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now, if you don't believe in old Snaggletooth 
And if that's not a mind-blowing statement, I don't know what is. Because we read in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are involved in spiritual warfare. And specifically, it says in Ephesians chapter 6 that old Snaggletooth, the enemy of our soul, this fallen angel, is a cunning adversary. It also says about him that he's organized and that he's in, he's in charge of a large group of fallen angels. And specifically, the way in which Snaggletooth affects your life and the way he affects my life is through the primary means is through our mind, through our mind. Now, those of you can say, I don't believe in old snaggletooth, I don't believe in Satan, I don't believe in fallen angels, and, uh, but you're not being biblical. This is what the Bible teaches, and this is what the Bible says, that we do have an adversary, and he's very cunning, he's well organized, and he primarily uses our minds. It should not surprise us that the real battle for our lives uh, is in our mind. In fact, I want to tell you something. In the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul wrote of Satan's work, he said, "This is Second Corinthians chapter two, verse eleven. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse eleven. This is what Paul wrote. He says, "We are not ignorant of his schemes." The Greek term rendered schemes has in its root the word mind. A paraphrase might read, "We are not ignorant." of his ability to get into our minds and direct our thoughts. He can't harm us. He can't physically do anything to us without God permitting that. And the only way that he can get to us is to plant thoughts, seeds of thought, seeds of disobedience, seeds of despair, seeds of uh, discouragement in our minds, that the target is for our mind. And that is exactly, that's exactly uh, what is happening to David. Satan has planted into David's mind, in his brain, hey, why don't you number the people of Israel? Let's see how big the kingdom is. Why not take an inventory of how vast your lands are and how many potential soldiers that you have, could have? And Joab, David's commander, tells David in so many words, David, this is not a good idea. This is a dumb decision. In fact, this morning, here are three observations I want to make. This leads me to my first point. Stay. Very simple. Stay close. Stay close to the Lord. Stay close to the Lord. And hear His voice. And be accountable to other people around you. You say, Pastor Ron, how do I stay close to the Lord? By having that still time in a safe place on a regular basis, praying and reading the Word and being in God's Word and being in fellowship with Christian people. You can't afford to miss two Sundays in a row of church, much less three or four. You can't afford to do that. The reason why is because you have an adversary, and this adversary would like nothing other than get you off the track and get you to believe some sort of lie or whatever it may be, to get you out of fellowship. Stay in God's Word, stay in prayer, have a still time and safe place, and stay in Christian fellowship. And be accountable. Be accountable to other people around you. David was out of touch with God. He was so out of touch. 
we, we don't find, during this particular time, we don't find him praying. We don't find him seeking God's counsel. We don't find him searching the scriptures before he made this decision. He simply said, I'm going to do it. The thought came in his mind. He didn't examine where it came from. He says, I'm just going to do it. This, this is a great thing I'm going to do. And his commander said, it's not a good idea, David. On top of this, David, again, was unaccountable, not accountable to anyone. No one, listen to this, the context tells us, no one could give David counsel. He answered to no one. He, he, he could do whatever he wanted virtually without challenge. Again, Job was the commander of his entire army. Job was a trusted friend. Job was a seasoned a warrior. Job was a proven advisor. He had proven David over and over to David that he was he had a, he was a man full of wisdom. He was a man after God's own heart, like David was. But David, for some reason, would not listen to him. Now, when I was uh, a young Christian, I remember specifically what someone said to me one time, and they gave me uh, some um, advice. And I didn't like it. I didn't like it at the time. It was a uh, just a little word of admonishment, but I didn't like it. But that simple word of admonishment has been a tremendous blessing to me over the years. It's been a tremendous blessing to me over the years, that simple word of admonishment. I just can't tell you how many ways it's been a blessing to me. How many people do you know and how many people that I know, well-intentioned Christian people, they get an idea, they get a vision, they get a word from the Lord, and they never share it with a trusted, seasoned Christian friend. Never ask them, is this of the Lord? Is this something that you would do? Or is this myself? Or perhaps this thought came from old Snaggletooth. It was said that Martin Luther, the great reformer from the 16th, 17th century, he would have such intense spiritual battles that he would talk out loud to old Snaggletooth. And one time he threw his inkwell across the room and he said, Get behind me, Satan. Are you accountable? To anyone. A young man years ago came to me and he said, Pastor Ron, I've got a wonderful, I have a wonderful opportunity that has opened up before me. For $10,000 cash, I can double, I can triple, I can quadruple my money. And then he told me about this financial investment. And I looked at him and I said, please don't do that. One time in my life, I fell for a get-rich-quick scheme. And I can smell those get-rich-quick schemes. I can smell them coming down the pike. I know I've got this discernment for some reason. God's given me this. And I can just say, don't do it. Please don't do it. You're going to lose your money. And the old saying, if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. He would not. And he did not listen to me. And he lost ten thousand dollars in this scheme and he and his wife had three or four children and they had a van payment and they had to sell their van and they had to borrow money and it took several years for them to get out of that mess 
If it's too good to be true, it's it's too good to be true. We need to be accountable to other Christian people. Now, of all ages, even those of us who are gray here, we can still find ourselves making bad decisions. All of us need to be accountable to other people. So stay close to the Lord and be accountable to other mature Christian people. Well, David, despite his friend's counsel, did not do this. And so he has this census taken anyway. And notice the immediate results in verse 10. Look at it with me. Notice, um, uh, David was conscious stricken. And, and if you like to circle, some of you don't, but if you've got a study Bible, you should really circle that because I'm going to give you the definition of that. He was conscious stricken, the NIV says, after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Another translation says, David's heart troubled him. Now, this is why David was a man after God's own heart, because he kept short accounts with God. As soon as he did this, the Holy Spirit convicted him, and he knew right away, because it says his, he was conscious stricken. And like I said, the NIV says his heart uh, troubled him. He was sensitive to the heart of God for his heart to trouble him. Now, the, the, that word, conscious stricken, comes from the Hebrew term, uh, the Hebrew word neka, and it's a, it's a severe word. It's a severe word. It conveys the idea of being wounded or crippled. In essence, deep inside of David's inner man, the Holy Spirit convicted him of the fact that what he did was wrong. And I want to say, thank the Lord. If you have ever been convicted by the Spirit of God, Praise God for that conviction. And especially if you have responded and said, as David said, please forgive me, Lord. That means that you're alive, that you're well, that you're healthy, because the Spirit of God has spoken to you and convicted you of something that you said or did. Now, it's too bad that you gave into that, whatever it may be, but at least, like David, perhaps, you answered and said, Lord, please Forgive me. This is good. It's good to have the Holy Spirit conviction. And perhaps David asked the question, why have I done this? Why, why didn't I heed Jacob's counsel? The longer he thought about it, the answer finally came. The only reason is my own pride. I want you to look at verse 10 one more time. So David was conscience-stricken after he counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a foolish thing. I've acted foolishly. Now this leads me to point number two. Observation number two this morning. When confronted, when confronted with your sin, or you sense the Holy Spirit's conviction, repent quickly. Keep short accounts with God. Ask for forgiveness. You say, isn't that a given, Pastor Ron? It isn't. I've done it, you've done it, and we know people who have been convicted about something, but instead of asking forgiveness, they'll continue in their willful sin or their rebellion against God. Ever been troubled about something that you're doing or something that you've said? If so, what have we done about it? Have we ignored it or, or do we say, I was wrong? 
David said, I, I've sinned greatly. Context, please forgive me, God. But our story is not over with. After his genuine repentance, David has a choice to make. And, and this is the most unusual section of Scripture. It's the only time I know of in the Bible where a person is given the opportunity to choose the consequence of following wrong. He gets to choose the consequence of his disobedience. God gives David a choice. And this is found in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter uh, 2, verses 9 through 12. And uh, I think that I think I've got it, the right passage. But anyway, this is what it says in that particular passage of scripture. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, one of the prophets, saying, "Listen to this. Go and speak to David, saying, Thus say the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, that I may do it to you.' So God came to David, the seer, this prophet, and said to him, 'Thus say the Lord, Take for yourself either three years of famine, or three months to be swept away before your foes, or else.'" Three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence and land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout the whole territory. Now, what a choice. What a choice. Did you hear that? You have three choices, David. Number one, three years of famine because of your disobedience. Number two, or three years that the enemy will rule over you. Or number three, three days of pestilence in the land. What a choice to make. Any one of the three is terrible and awful. But what a clear reminder for us that we can be forgiven of our sins, but unfortunately, sin still has a consequence. It still has a consequence. This leads me to point number three. To ignore sin's consequence is to reject God's word. To ignore sin's consequence is to reject God's word. Now, just stay with me. I'm almost finished here. Because David allowed old Snaggletooth to plant this thought in his brain. Because David did not obey, or excuse me, because David did not heed Joab's advice, he wasn't accountable to anyone. And because David went ahead and took this census because of his, really his pride, we read in Scripture that he has three choices and he chose the third one. Pestilence for three days. Stay with me. And because of his sin and because of his disobedience, 70,000 people died. 70,000 families we're mourning the loss of their family members. You cannot tell me that sin does not have a consequence. You say, Pastor Ron, can't we be forgiven of all our You can be forgiven of any sin. Any sin. But it still has a consequence. And the consequence may be different for you than what is different for me, but there is always a consequence. Always. You say... This is an important question. How can God allow such a thing? How can he allow such a thing? My response, how come God doesn't allow even more at times? Knowing all of the sins that people have committed. 
knowing of all the disobedience. It's only because of God's pervenient grace. It's only because of His grace. Scripture indicates that we deserve none of the benefits that come our way, but they do come our way because of God's grace. The analogy that always comes to my mind is the the car driving around these mountain roads in Grant County. And you go around these mountain roads and sometimes there are guardrails there and sometimes you see those warning signs. It says, slow down, steep curve, don't go off the edge. Those signs are there for our good, for our welfare, for our benefit. But I can be forgiven of any sin because of God's grace. And yes, you can. So you ignore the warning signs and you go off the edge. But you don't know how far you might go down and you don't know what damage you can do while you're going down off that edge. And you land at the bottom. You see, there's no emergency room at the bottom. There's just those warning signs at the top. And this is what I tell people all the time. You don't want to presume upon God's grace because you don't know the consequences. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how far you're going to go down. You don't know what kind of damage is going to be done when you go off the road. You just don't know. Let's pray together.